Now, uh, grab your Bibles and open them to um, Hebrews 11. And I'll read you my text that's beginning in verse 13. It goes through verse 16. So you hear now that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired. What I'm going to read you is just black words off of a white page that God inspired to be put there. They read like this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Now, guys, before the author adds any more names to this growing list of of heroes, um, which, by the way, he will do. That is, he's going to add some more names. That's going to come in verse 17 following. In fact, in verse 17, he's going to return us to Abraham, and he's going to give us a chance to look at a story in Genesis 22 that is probably the most dramatic story you found anywhere in the Old Testament. But before he starts adding to that list of names, he gives us um, a brief summary of what he's already said. And um, (laughs) the summary that he gives us in these four verses, it's just thrilling. It's rich. And the richness, at least for me, is found in the last sentence of the paragraph. Look at it. He says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Two things. God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them city you know guys when I say that's rich I really mean that because I am painfully aware that I have given God plenty of reasons to be ashamed of me please don't ask me for the details all I can tell you is I know that I have given God plenty of reason to say I've had it with him I don't ever want to look at him again. Get him out of my sight. That's what I've earned. So to read something like this, that there are people of whom he is not ashamed, and then added to that it says, that for those people, the ones of whom he's not ashamed, 
He's provided a city. I mean, do you, do you understand what's being said there? I mean, um, no more tent life. You know, it's the, it's the comparison between a tent and a city. There's no more impermanence. There's no more living a life of an alien. Um, it's the same city that Abraham was looking for. You know, the one with foundations that is mentioned up in verse 10. For them, he says, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. And I've even built a city for them. So, what I want to know then is who are they? There are two pronouns in that sentence. Look at it. It says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. That's a pronoun, there. For he has prepared for them. There's another pronoun. He's prepared for them a city. Who are they? It's not everybody. It's, um, it's a city for them. And he's not ashamed to be called there. Who is this people? There and them refers to somebody. But who? And I want to suggest to you that the text, the paragraph, gives us a lot of information as to who those people are. Um, There's five pieces of description about those people, those people of whom God is not ashamed. And I want to look at those five pieces of description, and I'm going to do it not in order of the text, because I was particularly drawn to to one statement that's made in there uh, that is simply a description of the people of whom God is not ashamed. You get that? There's five things that's said in there, and I I want you to see them all. But I want to start with verse 15. Verse 15, we're, we're told, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. The people of whom God is not ashamed are a people who had an opportunity to go back. They had an opportunity to go back to the land out of which they came. But they didn't. They didn't because they couldn't. They couldn't bring themselves to go back to that land out of which they came. Abraham, for instance, said something like, yeah, I realize that I don't have any acreage in Canaan yet, but I sure don't want to go back to the Ur of the Chaldees, not to that place. <laughs> no way. You remember that place? Do you remember that place out of which you came? Boy, I do. In fact, one of my next-door neighbors, much sin, he still lives there. Guys, there is, um, 
the story of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. You remember they got locked into walking around for 40 years in the wilderness. You remember all that? And uh, we're told in, that, in the midst of that 40 years, there was a group that the text calls a rabble. <laughs> there, was a, there was a small subset of people, which they were called the rabble. And, and the rabble wanted to go back. I want to go back to Egypt because I remember, oh boy, do I remember. There was meat and there was fish and there was cucumbers and melons and, and, and onions and garlic. You know, uh, if, if you're old enough, you might remember a guy by the name of Keith Green who was a Christian singer who was killed in an air, air, uh, airplane crash. But he had a song entitled, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt, Do You? And he, and he makes reference to those same things, the meat and the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the garlic and bondage. Well, oh, we don't believe, we don't remember any bondage. I mean, somebody get me some onions and garlic and hopefully a little Listerine. I'm, um, I'm far more comfortable back in Egypt. You know, in that bondage. Far more comfortable back there than in this promised land that, that Moses keeps talking about, which, by the way, we've never seen. You know, guys, I don't know whether you ever read um, um, Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. If you were ever in my grace group, you, you, you probably did read it. But uh, um, the, the, the Bill, Pilgrim's Progress is just an allegory. It's a... It's an extended metaphor. It's a whole book of an extended metaphor. And it's a story about a guy whose name, the the hero is named Christian. And Christian comes out of the city of destruction and begins to make his way towards the heavenly city. It's just a story about a man who gets converted and is on his way to heaven and all that he faces in between. And so when when Christian first leaves the, um, the city of destruction, There are two of his neighbors that go with him, obstinate and pliable. Well, obstinate didn't make it very far. I mean, he quickly turns back. But but, but pliable trudges on until he comes to the first piece of difficulty. It's called the slew of despond. Once he runs up against the slew of despond, (laughs) I'm going back. So he gets out of the slew of the spawn and he heads back to the city of destruction. You know, guys, I've still got friends that live back there in that city. And they would love to see me give up this religious spasm. Come on back to my senses. Back to that city. Guys, um, if you can go back, go back. That's the very essence of apostasy. An apostate is somebody who knew the truth, then finally gave it up and turned his back on it. But you see, the ones of whom God is not ashamed, 
though they might be tempted to go back, they don't. Because they can't. You know, folks, it's a wonder that all of us haven't gone back. But when we were tempted to go back, we found out that we just couldn't, we couldn't go back to that. And in the process, we learned, we learned to whom we belong. You know, one of my heroes in the Old Testament, I think you've heard me say this, is Jeremiah. I love Jeremiah. I have a Rembrandt print hanging in my living room at the house about Jeremiah. But my favorite episode in the life of Jeremiah is, is recorded in chapter 20. And um, Jeremiah has just been arrested and, and beaten and uh, locked up overnight and put in stocks and he's finally let go. And, and so in chapter 20, he says, um, Okay, Yahweh, that's enough. I quit. I've had enough. I'm not doing this anymore. I, I mean, I, you can get yourself another boy. Uh, because uh, I'm turning in my prophet's card. I'm, I, I quit. And then you come to verse 9 of chapter 20. And Jeremiah says this. But if I no more speak in the name of Yahweh, there is within me a fire in my bones. I can't quit. Because there's a fire in my bones. There's another scene in the New Testament. It's in John 6. Remember, Jesus has just preached that very difficult sermon about no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Tough stuff in John 6. And then I think it's verse 65 where, where Jesus, or the, where the text says, and many of his disciples withdrew from him and were following him no more. And then verse 66 says, um, Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, you guys going to go back too? And Peter piped up and he said, where would we go? I mean, only you have words of life. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can go back, go back. But the ones of whom God is not ashamed to call his own are the ones who had an opportunity to go back to that land out of which they came. But they didn't. Because they couldn't. Guys, that's the first piece of description that you get of those people of whom God is not ashamed. Here's the second one. It's found in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the, prom the things promised, but 
having seen them and greeted them from afar, and here it is, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Do you see? They acknowledged, it might not have been their first choice, but they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles here. They had embraced their, their alienhood. And all of those promises that God had made to them, the ones that they had held so dear, the ones on which they had, they had built their life, not a one of them ever came true in their lifetimes. None of the patriarchs ever owned a home. Kind of like Jesus who had no place to, to, to delay his head. And because of their belief in these promises, it, 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 it made life in this world seem less and less like home. They, they are perpetual nomads. They are perpetual expatriates. Their, their faith had redirected their affections away from this world and toward heaven. And none of those promises ever were realized in their lifetime. And yet their eyes were set on another land. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, there are two homelands. But for them, the ones of whom God is not ashamed, there's only one homeland. You see, they, they don't expect to be here long. The world is just to them a hotel. They check in at night and they're going to check out early in the morning because heaven is the place they're headed. And we're on our way to that place that God has built just for us. You know, folks, this world may be the, may be the scene of the pursuit of our hopes. But it can never be the location of the, of the fulfillment of those hopes. And the longer I am a Christian, the more I, I feel that. I wake up some mornings and I wonder, where am I? I'm living in a world that celebrates transgendering. And I wonder... Where am I? I? I live in a world where a linebacker at the University of Missouri, because he comes out of the closet as a homosexual, is hailed as a hero in ESPN. And I wonder, where am I? I don't belong here. The third thing that is a characteristic or a description of these people of whom God is not, it's in verse 14 when he says, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking, they're seeking a homeland. They're seeking something that they've never seen, of which they have only heard. But that's what faith does, ladies and gentlemen. 
It gives me something to pursue that I can't even see and I've only heard about. You know, there's this... There's a statement on the part of Jesus in John 8 where Jesus says this. He says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced and was glad in it. Now, when did that happen? When did Abraham ever see Jesus? He never met Jesus during this lifetime. How did that happen? Well, it happened because, you see, eyes that have been opened to see by faith they see things that others don't see and those are the eyes of them of whom God is not ashamed they're seeking something they've never seen Jesus said it once you know Blessed are you who have seen, but blessed are all of those who will come after you who have never seen. The ones of whom God is not ashamed are people who are seeking that which has never been seen. Here's a fourth one. I love this. This is in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. Let me point this out to you. This is why I love it. The word country... It's not found in the Greek text. It's supplied by the translators. What what it literally says is they desire a better, period. They have an appetite for the better. For them, so so much of this is just dry as dust for them because they're looking for a better, a better everything. For non-Christians, this world is enough, but not for them. They desire, they desire a better. And that desire keeps getting bigger and bigger over time. And they know that it can never be satisfied here. Gang, you do know this, don't you? You you do know that that our character is revealed in our desires. You give me a list of your desires, and I'll tell you who you are. So stop listening to this sermon and just make a list of your desires, and you'll find out who you are. Here's the fifth piece of description of them of whom God is not ashamed. It's found in verse 13. It says, these all died in faith. You see, they finished. So when they died, all they had to do was die. When when I'm on my deathbed, I want to have all of my eternal questions answered because it's hard enough just to die. But I'll tell you how it's when it's really hard to die in faith. When you haven't lived in faith. So there they are. 
the ones of whom God is not ashamed. Number one, they had an opportunity to go back, but they, they didn't because they couldn't. Number two, they, they embraced their alienness, their alienhood. That they, lived this, they acknowledged their strangers and exiles. They don't belong here. Number three, they're seeking that which is unseen. Number four, they desire a better. And then number five, they all died in faith, knowing that death was the gateway to the city that God had prepared for the ones of whom he is not ashamed. <laughs> That's pretty rich, isn't it? You know, guys, um, it doesn't surprise me that the world is ashamed of God. The world doesn't want anything to do with him in the first place. But what is shocking to me is that there are some good church-going folk, you know, professing Christians, who are ashamed of him. Tell me this, what part, of what part are you ashamed? Is it his truth? Um, is it his righteousness, his long-suffering? Uh, is, it, is it his death for under, the undeserving? Um, maybe it's his love that, that you're ashamed of. Well, guys, I, I want you to know that Jesus addresses this whole issue in one biting sentence. I want to read it to you. This is in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words uh, in this adulterous and, and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, the real issue is not whether you're ashamed of him. The real issue is that he's ashamed of you. But there is a group that Hebrews 11 tells us of whom he is not ashamed. Isn't that? Oh, I've given him plenty of reason to be ashamed of me. But in his sovereign grace, he has made me someone of whom he is not ashamed. Guys, let me point this out and I'll quit. You understand that those five things, those five pieces of description... They were never done perfectly by Abraham and Sarah and Noah. And nobody ever did them perfectly. They didn't do them perfectly. I don't do them perfectly. You don't do them perfectly. But is the general trajectory of your life something like these folks? Because you see, even these folks need a Savior. Abraham needs a Savior. Noah needs a Savior. The Virgin Mary needs a Savior. Mother Teresa needs a Savior. Billy Graham needs a Savior. R.C. Sproul needs a Savior. 
I need a Savior. And you need a Savior. And there's only one of them. Those who embrace that Savior, may I inform you, you are the ones of whom God is not ashamed. Our Father, I, I do pray that you will uh, refresh your people by them being told, not by me, but by your word, that there is this group of people that you take delight in calling your own. And you've even prepared a city for them, the ones described right here in Hebrews 11. And so, Father, those of us who have stepped out into this household of faith, oh, we know of the things that we have done that should make you ashamed of us, and yet you tell us you are not. If you were to mark iniquities, who of us could stand? None of us. But there is forgiveness with thee, so that you may be feared. Oh, we glory in the gospel that we embrace and the gospel that tells us of an undeserved forgiveness because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, if you've led people in here this morning who have not yet seen this Savior in all of his beauty, would you open their eyes that they might see Christ and him crucified as the only remedy for the sicknesses of the soul? Lord, do that. Expand your kingdom even now. And we ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.